0: Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Erica Ensign. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled s- to be here. so excited. Um, Erica, who are you? Oh, wow. That is
1: <laughs> a deep question right off the bat. Um well, I am a am a podcaster, and as a matter of fact, one of my podcasts it covers a, a an old off the off the screen TV show of called Babylon Five, and uh, and the question Who are you? figures very heavily in a good portion of Babylon Five. That so does. I just found that amazing that was the question <laughs> you asked right off the bat. It made me immediately go to my geek roots. So I guess that's a
0: that's a good way to answer it. I'm, I'm
1: a geek and a podcaster.
0: So that's actually how. I have known about you longer than I have known you, um, because my husband and I have listened to the Incomparable podcast um, since like the early days, like in the first 20 episodes or so, I think we found it. Wow. And um, and then, you know, a little bit later, you joined the cast of characters um, as part of the Incomparable. And I was so happy because you were saying the things that I was yelling at... <laughs> at the podcast. And I was like, yes, I'm so glad Erica is here now. Oh, that, I, that
1: thrills me to, uh, to, to play that role for someone because I listen to a lot of podcasts and quite often I'm the one yelling at the, uh, yelling at the, uh-huh. the device and being like, somebody
0: say what I think. So right. why can't hey. you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've told, um, Jason, a while back that um, I think like about a year ago, I was like, I'm so glad that you, that you brought Erica on board because it was, it was much needed. So I think, I'm so happy. But what are some of the other podcasts you do? Because you've got quite a few that you are prominently (laughs) featured on. Yeah. The
1: stable is ever expanding. It seems, uh, I would say that I guess my primary podcast is called Verity with an exclamation point, Verity, uh, the exclamation point is part of the name of the podcast because that's the way we uh, it's it's me and five other women from across the globe, and it is a Doctor Who podcast. We talk about all things Doctor Who. We, um, When when the show is airing, we will discuss the new episodes, but when the show's not airing, we do a theme every year and try to cover a whole bunch of other stuff from the entire 50-plus years of Doctor Who. This year, we're doing firsts, so all kinds of the, the first season of new Doctor Who, the first series of... Uh, classic Doctor Who and all kinds of firsts, like, you know, what was your first Doctor Who novel, that kind of thing. So that's been super fun. Um, Other podcasts, I have another Doctor Who podcast called Lazy Doctor Who, which is on the Incomparable Network, which I do with my spouse. Steven and I just uh, sit on the couch and watch Doctor Who. We're starting at the very beginning and then briefly talk about it whenever we feel like it. So the episodes range from like five minutes to half an hour and come out whenever the heck we feel like it. <laughs> I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, then also I mentioned the Babylon 5 podcast that's called The Audio Guide to Babylon 5, just going through episode by episode uh, with a couple folks that incomparable listeners might recognize, uh, Chip and Shannon Sutterth. And I also co-produce a podcast for Uncanny Magazine, which is an awesome awesome magazine of short fiction and poetry and essays about the sci-fi and genre community and it is something that I'm super proud of being a part of we really focus on diversity and accessibility and all that kind of cool stuff so I like uh like producing that and I do some of the readings for that podcast so I get to to read amazing short fiction and poetry into podcasts and then of course there's the incomparable where I play Dungeons and Dragons on good grief these (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Total Party Kill. <laughs> yes, which is the only video podcast that I do. It's it's audio and video. And uh, yeah, it's weird. Usually when I'm doing a podcast, I'm like in my pajamas and haven't showered or anything. But mm-hmm. for Total Party Kill, I actually, you know, brush my hair. Sometimes I even
0: take a shower. You know. Wow. It's, it's a you different podcasting all experience. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just... Um... Exhausted.
1: <laughs> that's a <laughs> lot. You're exhausted. <laughs> that's,
0: that's a lot of podcasts. And I don't know. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm actually extraordinarily introverted. Um, you know, like I record a podcast and then I need to go take a nap because I've been <laughs> like, even though I'm not around someone, I'm still you know kind of projecting, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. Doing all of that is just admirable <laughs> and. I wow. I am I like to refer to myself as an introvert
1: who often masquerades as an extrovert. Mm-hmm. So, I find that podcasting is kind of the perfect happy medium for me because I'm not physically with people I'm still in my my comfort zone my happy space you know I'm I actually podcast our podcasting studio is in a room filled with like like eight or ten bookshelves full of lego because my husband is a collector uh and and like my house yeah also some books uh just a few in comparison to lego and it's so I, I feel at ease when I'm doing podcasts but I still get the uh the social connection of, of interacting with people. So when I get done with the podcast, I'm usually really jazzed. Like I'll head into the other room and Stephen will be like, Oh, she's done with the podcast. And I just, <laughs> I'm talking a mile a minute and stuff, but I'm not, I'm not really an extroverted person in any way. So when I have to exist in the real world and interact with people in, in person while I enjoy it, that's when I need to go and take a nap sometimes. That's much
0: harder. Mm-hmm. So Tell me about your history as a geek because I think from what I've heard, um, like the things I've heard you talk about, you were kind of like me where you were kind of surrounded by science fiction and nerdery like your entire life and that's just how it was supposed to be, because that's how you were. That's how you were raised. Is that true? Yes, that is
1: exactly right. I mean, my my parents were both geeks from the time before I was born. Uh, I actually saw the original Star Wars in utero, so I guess technically I didn't see it, but I was in the theater because my mom was pregnant with me, and my parents are geeks. So you know, the uh, the basement of our house was filled with bookshelves uh, that had tons of you know, like pulp science fiction paperbacks from the 50s, 60s, 70s. That was just the kind of thing that I was surrounded with. I grew up watching Doctor Who because that's what my mom's favorite show was. She used to go to Doctor Who conventions when I was a little kid. Now I'm going to Doctor Who conventions as an adult. So it was kind of like just, you know, we, we weren't a religious family. We didn't go to church. Uh, I feel like science fiction was sort of the closest thing I got to religion when I was a child.
0: Yeah, actually. um, But unlike, so I grew up with Doctor Who was also like my mom would record it. And -hmm. because it was on PBS late at night, she would record it um, using this fancy thing called a VCR. And some of you might not know what that is. (laughs) Kind of like a DVR, but anyway. And so um, she would record it on the VCR and then she would watch it the next morning on Sunday mornings. And I hated it. I absolutely (laughs) hated it. And it was the same with um, like she would watch Star Trek and I remember her watching it and you know be, me being fairly little and be like no this is the worst show I hate the show why are you watching it like I was like actively angry that she was watching it and then at some point the flip switched for science fiction for Star Trek for me but it never did for Doctor Who Interesting. I've tried going back and watching classic who and I can't do it like I'm all about the new series mm-hmm. um but I can't watch classic Doctor Who and it makes me kind of sad Well, the thing about
1: classic Doctor Who is there's so much of it that I feel like, you know, a lot of people really are just never going to appreciate that era of television making because it is so drastically different. However, However, it is so long that there's a good chance that there's something out there that would appeal to you that you would be able to have a connection with. But there's so much of it to sift through that a lot of people get turned off by just like, you know, they they go through the drudgery of, you know, episode after episode, and they're just not just not right for them. And I, I don't blame people for giving up before they find the the piece that would be sort of more to their to their liking.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we tried because my husband wasn't steeped in um he watched Star Trek and Star Wars, mm-hmm. but the Doctor Who piece was missing for him. And so um when we started kind of binge watching, I guess, <laughs> the New Who, um, I don't know, it was probably season three three or f- it was yeah I think it was season three still David Tennant still Rose and um oh then it would have been season two season two oh right because Rose left at the end of season two yep yep yeah so we yeah and then we watched we started watching at season three I think um yeah so he didn't know he's like what are these dalek things and why are they like (laughs) what is going on and we still had the netflix uh at that point we still were getting netflix discs which we don't anymore and so we ordered like the tom baker like origin of the daleks and i think we watched two episodes and he was like i just can't do this and i was like yeah i can't either (laughs) it's 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 slow and that's a a
1: rough place to start i
0: mean that's (laughs) that's one of those things that's one of those stories that fans hold
1: up as you know the holy grail of amazing awesomeness and I rarely think that those are the types of stories to start people out on if they're just coming back to uh, to to who from from new who because yeah I mean I haven't actually seen that story for a long time but I do remember it as starting out uh, a little grim and slow
0: yeah well do you have suggestions for people um like exciting places to start with with the classic doctor who you know, I think that that's, it so depends Individual. on the personality
1: of the person. I mean, my absolute favorite story of all time is one that even that a lot of Doctor Who fans kind of look down their noses at a little bit, um, but I think it's amazing. And it is the first episode of the 16th season, um, which is, is still Tom Baker, the guy with a scarf, uh, but it's later in his run. And he, um, the producer that he had when he first started was uh, Philip Hinchcliffe, who is considered like the greatest producer in all of uh, Doctor Who history Um, he did a nice job there's a lot of like horror tropes and sort of pastiches and that sort of thing but it's almost entirely lacking in women. Like it's, it's really bad. The doctor has his companion and quite often the companion is the only female character in the entire show mm-hmm. or, you know, one of two. Uh, and it's very, it's, it's dark and it's, it's very, it's really good. Some of the best writing of doctor who is there, but it's not the era that I like the best. I actually like it. Uh, after Philip Hinchcliffe left, uh, a fellow named Graham Williams came and t- took over and was given the edict to sort of soften up the show a little bit, make it less violent, less horror, um, And a lot of older fans, mostly male, were not particularly happy with that change, but I loved it. Graham Williams added a lot more female characters to the show. He maybe didn't corral Tom Baker as an actor quite so well, so you get more... Tom Baker weirdness, uh, which I don't mind at all because I think it's kind of delightful. So season 16 was still, it was Graham Williams, and they decided to try arc-based storytelling for the first time over the course of a season. So the very first story, which is my favorite has a little opening section where the doctor is pressed into service to find these six different pieces of the the key to time a great artifact that, that's going to save or or wreck the universe and he gets sla- he gets slapped with a companion that he doesn't want and he's got his robot dog along with him and I love canine. the robot dog
0: canine yep I know people uh, don't like canine and ugh. those ugh, people
1: I should wrong my head at them they are mm-hmm. wrong. Yep, and his companion is another time lady who is a woman and she's smarter than he is, did better at the uh, at the Gallifrey Academy and he doesn't want her around because he doesn't think he needs help and it's just this wonderful wonderful interplay between the two of them and then they have this heisty adventure on a planet that's kind of like old Russia during the <laughs> during the winter and I mean that's my favorite place to try to start people, although it doesn't always work because, again, it's it's to each to each his own. Um, anybody who's really got a modern eye for television, I would probably say to start with the the Seventh Doctor's era because that's actually when the current state of Doctor Who – sort of you can see the nucleus of it during the Seventh Doctor. It's the first time that we get – a companion that is the star of the show as much as the Doctor. The story actually revolves around the companion, the Doctor's companion, Ace. Um, more than it ever had around any other companion before. I don't personally like that era myself. I'm not a big fan of the late 80s of Doctor Who, but uh, I know a lot of new fan, new Who fans have gone back and and really liked that era. It's very very colorful, very jazzy. Um, so there's lots of different places to start, but I think it it kind of takes somebody who knows you as a person to point mm-hmm. you in the right direction.
0: Well, you describing this Tom Baker season sounds, I mean, perfect for me, right? Like I'm about diversity and seeing you know strong representation of all sorts of groups of people and um maybe it's not strong representation in this case but for the era probably better than a lot of things we're doing
1: Um, the third the third story in that season actually has two women who are i mean it's not textual but clearly the subtext is this is a lesbian couple and almost all all of the characters the the villain the main character the other like good main characters all women in that story it's it's just kind of amazing i love that one too
0: See, this sounds right up my alley, and maybe, like, maybe we'll renew our Netflix discs so I can watch it because, um, That's one of the things I've actually loved about um, the current run and what I loved about River Song. And I know that River Song originally wasn't your favorite from listening (laughs) to incomparable episodes. But one thing that I really, really like about her is that she keeps the doctor on his toes and is frequently better at him than things that he should know how to do. Like, um, you know. Highlighting the TARDIS, t- the t- <laughs> like he's like it's not making that screaming, you know, this this siren noise, and she's like, yeah, that's because you don't do it right, you know. And I just <laughs> love that. I love how she, um, you know, this man who is always arrogant, um, whether he's like my fluffy David Tennant or even fluffier Matt Smith or current um, current incarnation with Peter Capaldi, like he's always arrogant, no matter what. And I just love. I having companions and people on there who kind of take him down a peg. Mm-hmm. And I think that may have been my problem at first
1: with River because she was like that from the very beginning, which makes sense because she had <laughs> spent many, In many, many years with him at that time. But to me as a viewer, I didn't feel like that was earned. And I, especially being such a classic Who fangirl, um, I'm, I'm not good with change all the time. It takes me a while. Even even the Doctor Who is a show that constantly changes, it always, it, it almost always takes me a little while to get on board with any of the adjustments. And I had real trouble. I always, I like the fact that the Doctor is the smartest person in the room. That's that's one of the things that draws me to the show mm. and makes the Doctor my favorite character. So having this person come in who has this history with a Doctor that I didn't know anything about that was really hard for me because I had a history with the doctor. Right. That makes and sense. I, you know, I, I felt like my history with the doctor should trump the history of, you know, any character that just came in out of nowhere. Uh, and the reason I think that I ha- have come to like her more and more as time has gone on is simply because I have gotten to see her earn the, you know, the ability to, to treat the doctor that way and to, to act that way. I, I don't care who the character is. I have trouble with it when they walk in and are completely uh, superior and jerky to other characters. And this Mm -hmm. includes the doctor. I am not a fan of the third incarnation of the doctor because he's kind of a pompous blowhard and just isn't very nice to the people around him. So I I felt like there was a hint of that in River Song at at the beginning. And and it took me a while to warm up to her as a character simply because she just didn't she didn't seem to have earned it. And Mm -hmm. then by the end, she really had.
0: Yeah. That hardness, I think is something that I haven't enjoyed about Peter Capaldi. Um, kind of talking about taking some time to warm up to someone Mm -hmm. until kind of recently I've started to be like, okay, I'm on board with him. But I remember sitting down with people like last Christmas and then being like, Capaldi is my favorite. And I'm like, no, like, because (laughs) I I love David Tennant so much. Like he will always be my one true doctor. I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and I know there are very strong opinions about David Tennant <laughs> yes. um but you know it just it just took me because he went from being like this this like fun loving bow tie wearing fez dude to like really hard and really almost cruel in some cases and so it's been kind of interesting to watch over the last couple of seasons and see how he, I don't think he himself has softened, but I think my perception of him has. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, it's something that I just recently realized is that it's really, and I'm sure this is on purpose and I'm just really slow and didn't catch it, that this is an interesting sort of mirror of the very, very beginning of Doctor Who. Because, you know, Peter Capaldi comes on as the, Thirteenth-ish Doctor, um, it's the first of basically a new set of regenerations, as far as we know. He wasn't supposed to get this far, mm-hmm. and suddenly, you know, Deus Ex Machina, Time Lords—you know—wave a magic wand through a crack, and suddenly here he has some more lives, and so he's he's kind of starting over. And uh, I mentioned Lazy Doctor Who, the podcast I do with my spouse Stephen, and. We've been watching the William Hartnell years from from 1963, the whole first season we just got through. And I had seen bits and pieces before, but I'd never actually watched all the way through. And William Hartnell's character at the beginning was very much the same way. He was, I mean, he was cruel to his companions sometimes. Uh, famously, in the very first story, there's a moment where they're they're running away from some cavemen, and they have another caveman with them. And this this caveman falls down and hurts himself, so he's going to slow them down. And you see the doctor picking up a rock, and he's going to brain this caveman and just put him out of his misery, quote unquote, just so that they can get away. Which is a very undoctorish thing to do wow, from yeah, today's it is. perspective. Um, But that's just that's what the character was at the time. And he really softened and became more like the doctor we know today through the just being with the companions that he picked up from Earth, so it was really the first couple companions, Ian and Barbara, who kind of taught the Doctor how to be more human. And I think that was just incidental because you know they they didn't have a grand plan for it in 1963; they were just trying to get a show out every week. And you know the character necessarily softened because it it worked better for the kiddies at the time. And I think we're seeing a little bit of an echo of that now. We've got the Doctor basically starting over, and this Doctor is very similar to. William Hartnell with his his crotchetiness and his his harshness. Uh, I think I probably see more at this point, more of Tom Baker, the fourth doctor in Peter Capaldi's performance. But there's still even costume wise, the blacks and whites and, mm-hmm. and stuff at the beginning is. Uh, yeah, I think they are they are doing a little bit of of having him start out. And in this case, it's Clara, a school teacher from Coal Hill School, same school that Ian and Bar- Barbara were from in 1963, uh, who is helping the doctor soften and teaching him what it is like to be a human all over again. It's pretty cool.
0: And thank goodness. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, and it is, it's kind of a nice change, I guess, because we had, you know, Chris Eccleston and he was kind of, kind of harsh, but kind of goofy and kind of, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. He was, he was different. And then it went like directly into David Tennant, who could also be hard, but was also very, very compassionate. And then Matt Smith, who was, goofy doctor and now we're back um into that harder contrast um so it makes an interesting delineation between like all of the the personalities of the doctor and how does it all fit together Mm -hmm. yeah so why did you decide to start podcasting about doctor who
1: um, you know, I actually, it's funny, you were talking before about yelling at your at your podcast device and being happy that I was <laughs> saying the things you wanted to say. I think it, it, it kind of started that way for me. I discovered, well, I discovered the world of podcasts via Twitter, actually, in the first place. Um, my sister is a librarian and is as such is wise and knows all. And she told me that I would really enjoy Twitter. And I thought she was crazy. Um, but Eventually, I capitulated and joined Twitter and started following like 10 people. And one of my friends retweeted something from Chris Hardwick, who at the time I'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was talking about Doctor Who. And I was like, oh, this is a person on Twitter who likes Doctor Who. I will follow this person. And then he had a podcast. So I started listening to the Nerdist podcast. And then – not too long after that, uh, he tweeted that he and another fellow, uh, Kyle Anderson from the Nerdist website, were going to be interviewed on a podcast called Radio Free Scarrow, which is my now husband's Doctor Who podcast. So I my little mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, a whole podcast devoted to Doctor Who? That's crazy. Little did I know there were like a hundred of them, but... <laughs> But I didn't know that. So I started listening to RFS and I loved that interview uh, with those guys. And just I was just like, this is a great show. I'm just going to keep listening. And I did. And I loved hearing all these opinions about Doctor Who, but they weren't always the same as my opinion. And I would want to you know, get it in there. And I branched out from there and started listening to podcasts like Tardis Tavern and Mostly Harmless Cutaway and just uh, Two Minute Time Lord. All of these things uh, had different opinions about Doctor Who, coming at it from different angles, but none of them were my angle. And I started going to Doctor Who conventions and becoming friendly with other people. And Deb Stanish, my Verity co-host, was was one of the, the friends I made at Doctor Who conventions. And she'd been going on for years and years about the lack of female representation in the Doctor Who podcast world. At the time, there was only one podcast that was entirely female. It was just two women talking about science in Doctor Who. And there were a couple of podcasts that had a girl on them. And at this time, we're talking roughly 100 Doctor Who podcasts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really not such a great, uh, such a great showing. So finally, uh, one of our friends on Twitter, Michael Thomas, who's the uh, co-editor in chief of uncanny magazine, which I do a different podcast for now. He said, you know, Deb, it's time for you to put your money where your mouth is. Why don't you start a podcast? You should, you should do it. And I think Erica would help you and his wife, Lynn and Katrina and Tansy and Liz. Uh, he, he tagged all of those people on Twitter and and Deb Im- immediately emailed me, actually, our emails crossed each other in the stream because we were both emailing the other one so furiously after this after this tweet came out and she was like, "I don't know how to push buttons, but I would love to host a podcast." and I was like, "I can't host a podcast, but I would love to push the buttons and it was perfect so we we started it and we used the same people that were tagged in that tweet and that was that was how Verity got started. so my only experience before Verity was just sending in some audio feedback to a couple podcasts and and doing a couple of of guest spots with people which is not the same thing as running your own podcast. No. Yeah. And I I loved it. I mean I have a I have a degree in communication arts with a concentration in radio, television and film, so I learned how to do audio and video editing in college and hadn't been using it much. Suddenly it was a chance for me to use skills that had been a little bit rusty but that I enjoyed and it meant I got to put it together with talking about Doctor Who, which by this time, I feel like I'm much, much, much better at than I was at the time. I was so nervous about podcasting when I started out.
0: I um, so less than or equal is actually my first podcasting experience. Like I just dove in and just started doing it. Nice. And um, before interviews with people, I used to shake like I would literally tremble and oh. I would always um, brush my teeth. Because I don't know, like I was like, oh, I, I need to, you know, I'm going to be talking to someone. So I had to always like brush my teeth or suck on a breath mint or something. Um, Just for people listening, like you don't have to. <laughs> people ask me about podcasting all the time. You just dive in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was so nervous because I don't
1: know. I just felt like the things that I had to say were for some reason, less important than the things that anybody else in the world had to say. Like, why would anybody care what I think? And that's a really dumb, (laughs) really dumb view to have, I guess. And, and I finally just took a while to be like, okay, you know what? Everybody's important. Everybody's important. Mm -hmm. Everybody's opinion means something to them if, if, if not anybody else. But chances are, whenever anybody thinks, there's other people out there who think that, too. So why not be the voice for that slice
0: of life? Yeah. So how what was reception like when you actually started recording it, put it out there? Were people like, thumbs up or... <laughs> it was it was actually much better than we
1: expected. Um, since the, the landscape of Doctor Who podcasting was so dude heavy, we were a little bit worried about, you know, having some sort of a backlash. And it really wasn't too bad. I, I think that the the people who were snickering at us and rolling their eyes pretty much did it in mostly private Forums. I mean, we saw a little bit of it, sort of sneaking out around the edges, but for the most part, the direct response was was great. Uh, tons of people just saying thank you so much for this this representation, there was nothing like this before. And I'm so glad that I get to experience it. And it wasn't just women. As a matter of fact, I think most of our listeners and most of the feedback, especially at the beginning came from guys Mm -hmm. being like, I had, I, I never looked at Dr. Who this way before. This is amazing. Thank you for, you know, expanding my horizons. So it was, it was really good. And we had, I mean, we were lucky because it was, six of us starting this podcast and we aren't all six on at the same time. Usually it's usually four of us in any given podcast, but we had uh, you know, fan bases for several of the people on the podcast already. I mean, we had Hugo winners and stuff mm-hmm. on the podcast. So that's, that's a nice little boost to get people listening to start with. And then we really kind of, Uh, launched by doing a quick interview on Stephen's podcast, Radio Free Scarrow. And they really pushed us pretty heavily because not only is Stephen my spouse, but uh, Katrina is partners with Chris, who is on Radio Free Scarrow. So, you know, they (laughs) They had incentive. Yeah, they were motivated to to help (laughs) us out. And Radio Free Scarrow is I'm pretty darn sure is the biggest Doctor Who podcast in the world at this point. So they, you know, that was, that was a really nice cushy place to be able to, (laughs) to be able to advertise for ourselves. So it was, it was a great start and it's just, it's only been good from there really.
0: I didn't know, uh, how popular Radio Free Scarrow was until I started really following you on Twitter, like actually reading almost all of your tweets, because I do a thing where I skim to the top and I don't read tweets. And mm-hmm. you were like, yeah, Steven's interviewing Jenna Coleman at, you know, this convention. I was like, what? <laughs> yep.
1: Steven, at this point, has interviewed, I think, probably well over 100 people from the Doctor Who universe. And that's, you know, that includes people like Jenna Coleman and Billy Piper and um, all of the classic doctors that are still alive. And I don't think he's gotten any of the new doctors yet, but that's, you know, that's like on his list. Only a (laughs) matter of time. Mm hmm. Yep. And a lot of those interviews, I mean, many of them were for the podcast. So they're just audio interviews that you can listen to. But uh, in the past few years, he's branched out and started doing onstage interviews. So yeah, he's done a, quite a bit of the convention circuit, doing the on-stage interviews with these people. And he's really good at it. I know I'm biased, but <laughs> I mean, other people clearly think he is too, because they keep putting him on stage with the big stars. That's really cool for him. That's super exciting. Mm-hmm. And it's great for me, too, because I get to sit there and watch. I mean, I've done a couple of onstage interviews myself just this last this last year um, at uh, Galley. Gallifrey won the big uh, fan run Doctor Who convention in L.A. I decided, OK, I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring and, you know, <laughs> give it a try. So I interviewed. Um, Fraser Hines, who played uh, Jamie, the second Doctor's companion, and who is now, let's uh, see, I'm not sure exactly what he's doing now. I think he was on a couple episodes of Outlander, which is appropriate since his character, the main character of Outlander is actually named after him and the character oh, he played on Doctor neat. Who. Yeah. Uh, and then I also interviewed Gary Russell, who has done a little bit of everything in Doctor Who. He was the script editor during uh, during your favorite years of of New Who the Russell t davis era he also worked for, uh, he was the editor of doctor who magazine he's written doctor who novels he was a producer i think with big finish who does the doctor who audio plays yeah i mean he's done a little bit of everything and i know gary so it was it was it was nice to be able to start with somebody who i was familiar with as my first onstage interview it was it was terrifying but really really fun so i will
0: probably be doing more of that myself oh good i'm glad to hear it went well because mm-hmm. that's always um like you said terrifying <laughs> yes
1: yeah, I was, I was very lucky. They were like in the morning on either the Friday or the Saturday of the convention, so I could
0: just get them out of the way and then relax for the rest of the con. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's perfect. Yep. That's uh, I spoke at Alt um, AltConf, uh, which is concurrent with the Apple, the Big Apple Developer Conference, and it was like on Wednesday, and so Monday <laughs> and Tuesday, you know, we fly in Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. I'm like oh, nervous, no. and then like finally Wednesday afternoon get to give my talk and then the rest of the time it was okay but it would have been nice to be like first yep we'll get back to our conversation in just a second but i wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by squarespace start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code equal at checkout to get 10 percent off When it comes to giving yourself a place online, there is no place better than Squarespace. They put all the power you need into your hands and they help take away the pain points. So you don't have to worry about hosting. You don't have to worry about scaling. You don't have to worry about what happens if you get stuck because you can contact their support, 24 seven support with live chat and email with teams in New York City, Dublin and Portland who are there to help you. Now, before less than or equal joined Relay, our site was actually on Squarespace, and we had to use support a couple of times, and they were always really responsive and really, really helpful. That's why they're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Also, their site templates are beautiful to look at. They all feature responsive design to make your site look great on all sizes of devices, and if you want to customize it a little bit, you can do so with just a little bit of code if you know how. And if you sign up for a year, you'll also get a free domain name, which allows you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called. And Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. So go to squarespace.com, start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code equal to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for less than or equal. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So, one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is, um, since I followed you on Twitter for a while, um, and you are really open about some struggles you have with um, anxiety, um, and I don't know, maybe some depression. Mm-hmm. I I don't know that you've said, I think I'm maybe inferring, but um <laughs> I was hoping that um maybe we could talk about that a little bit because one of the big things that um I try to do is destigmatize a variety of things, whether it's, you know, people of different um orientations or genders or um with mental different mental health statuses or disabilities or whatever. Like it's just trying to Destigmatize it. I said that already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it's important enough to say it twice. to yeah, be perfectly I mean, honest, it, it
0: really is. So I was hoping that maybe we could talk about, um, like your experiences a little bit.
1: Yeah, I would be. I'd be happy to. And yes, it actually it is depression and anxiety okay. that I have had. It's just that it sort of shifted in my life. It was. It was really. De- depression was the thing that I kind of understood and knew about for, for longer. And it didn't really click that anxiety was an issue, um, even though it had been, but it didn't really click that that was one of my issues until more recently. So I think part of the reason that I've been so open and done blog posts and stuff about the anxiety is because that's a thing that feel, it's not new to me, but it feels new because just the ability to to work with it and work against it is is the part that's new but i'm i'm 100% on board with the uh, destigmatization destigmatization because that is what i have been trying to, to do just by talking about it openly because I, I hate that it's something that people feel ashamed of because it happens to so many people. In fact, I, I now live in Canada. I've, I've been here for a couple of years now, so it still feels like it's new. And uh, Bell is one of the big telecom companies in Canada. And every year, Bell does a big uh, Bell Let's Talk day, which this year is January 27th. And Bell donates five cents to mental, well, five cents more than they already do to mental health initiatives uh, for every text message, um, every tweet, Tweet using hashtag Bell Let's Talk, uh, Facebook images like it's it's a whole wow. big huge social media thing, and I was amazed at the first year that I was here that that happened, or maybe even happened before I moved that I found it on Twitter, and it's just. All of Twitter is is just at least in, in, you know, all my feed of Twitter is talking about mental health issues and just trying mm-hmm. to be open about it. They talk about it on NHL broadcasts, which is, I think, a huge thing uh, because that reaches a giant portion of the population in Canada. So I really felt like when I first twigged onto that, I was I felt like I was kind of in the right place, having made the decision to move all the way to Canada to live with Stephen. Um, that I was I was in a country where even the big corporations are trying to make it less of less of a, less of a big deal. Um, even though it is a big deal, but you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that, um, One of, one of the big issues is that, um, and I, I talked about this, so I think it was episode 27, um, for those of you listening, episode 27 with Georgia Dow, um, who actually is a a therapist who helps Mm -hmm. people deal with depression and anxiety. We did a whole episode about it. So if this is something you're struggling with, um, she gives some really good tips about, um, like how to manage, um, some symptoms and also, you know, encouraging to go to the doctor, um, (laughs) but I forget why I started that sentence, but I think one of the biggest things is um, there's this perception that if you can't see it, it's not real. Yes. You know, you can see, you can see lab results. You can see a broken bone. Like you can see the x-rays you can see. I don't know. You've got, I don't a skin condition. Like these are things mm. that you can see. And We've always had this attitude, at least in the United States, we've had this attitude of, you know, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. You're having a sad day. Do something to make yourself feel better. Like, mm-hmm. buck just up. snap out of it. Just snap out of it. And that's, <laughs> it's not how it works. Not, yeah, that's not a thing that you can do when
1: you're depressed or anxious. No. So true. I, as I said, for me, it was, it was depression that I kind of knew that I dealt with my entire life. My parents, you know how parents like to tell silly stories about their kids. Uh, One of the things that my parents used to to tell, or at least would tell me that I would do when I was very young is I would, I would get sad and I would just lie on the floor and I would cry. And, you know, my parents would say, stop crying. And I'd say, but I like to be sad. And that was, that was like one of my refrains as a little kid was, I like to be sad because... Which I mean, even as a teenager hearing the story, it, it made sense because that feeling of sadness was just, it was almost comfortable for me because it was where I lived so much of right. the time, which is terrible and and sad and stuff. But that's, I mean, I kind of knew that it was high school when I sort of realized that depression was a thing that I was dealing with. I didn't, it, it, I was lucky in that it, it wasn't severe enough that it, it got me to the point where I was incapacitated much, um, but then... I think it was after college was the first time that I decided to try medication because it got really bad. And I was glad I did, even though I didn't need to stay on the medication for for terribly long. And I have only started learning about anxiety just in the past few years because I thought, oh, depression, that was that was my problem. And I started realizing that, no, actually, anxiety has been really intrinsically tied up in it the whole time, too, because I was one of those kids who hated school. But I didn't hate school because of, you know, the homework or the learning or anything. That part was fine. I was a straight A student. I I didn't have any trouble with that. But I woke up every single morning feeling almost sick to my stomach because I was so scared to go to school. I was terrified every single day and I just thought it was a normal thing because you know kids are supposed to hate to go to school. Mm-hmm. Now looking back and realizing like that feeling that was not a normal feeling. That was not the feeling that somebody who just doesn't want to go to school has. That was that was terror and that was that was anxiety and I didn't I didn't realize that that was a thing that you could have when you were a kid. So I've I've only recently started putting the the pieces together and recognizing that 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 is something that I've also started had had to deal with. And I think in the past two or three years, I've, I've gotten so good with my depression coping mechanisms that it's not as big of a problem for me in life. Whereas I hadn't done any of that, that groundwork with Mm -hmm. anxiety. So the anxiety sort of felt like, I don't know if it actually has gotten worse or if it's just that I've noticed it more because I've press the depression back, yeah. but that's a thing that I've really had to, to work on coming to terms with over the past few years. So that's why I've, I've blogged about it so much because it's new and, and shiny in the most unshiny way possible.
0: So what, what has that revelation been like for you? I know a lot of people when they receive diagnoses like, uh, depression or anxiety or like ADHD or just ADD, um, they get really sad Um, whereas I, like when I was diagnosed with ADD, I was like, oh, everything just came into focus. Like I understand all of this stuff that I couldn't understand before, like in high school, why I struggled to get my homework done. I was valedictorian in my class. I could not do homework to save my life. Like, like all of these things that I had done or or juggling, you know, I was in school, I was managing the basketball team. I was working two jobs and, you know, like And I was like, well, I have coworkers who are, you know, doing sports and working and in school or not coworkers, classmates, Mm -hmm. I've been out of school too long, um, (laughs) who who are doing like these three things and, and they're doing okay. Why can't I like juggle all of these things? And then I was like, you know, my therapist was like, I think you have ADD. And I was like, you know, Oh, like this all makes so much sense now. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, was- I I fall into that camp okay. because when I, I I am always maybe it's just because I'm a left brain nerd, I don't know, I don't know, but I love for there to be reasons for things. Mm-hmm. So yep. even if we're not talking about mental health, even if we're talking about like physical health, if there's something wrong with me and I go to the doctor and they say, well, we're not really sure what it is, but just give it a couple days and it'll probably go away, like that sort of thing. That drives me crazy yep. because I, I want to know what is going on. I would rather have a diagnosis and know what, what's happening because that means I can start taking steps. I can put together a plan to attack it. I can give myself a routine and a list and things I can do and check off that list to to make life better or to get healthy. And without knowing that I was suffering from anxiety, I I didn't, I didn't know what to do to, to get better. I just kind of felt generally lousy. And again, When it comes to anxiety, I am I am also lucky that I am not currently at the point where I need to see the doctor regularly and and be on medication and stuff. I I can keep it at a I can I can stay functional and I'm doing okay without without that. I'm very careful about my diet and exercise and and a lot of you know, there are a lot of structural things I've put in place around me to make sure that I I stay functional and I do well. And and I, you know, I, I I don't look down at anybody who does take medication for it and I will absolutely head to the doctor. Or if I get to the point where I need it, mm-hmm. uh, but for right now I don't, and I'm I'm glad about that. I, I thank my lucky stars. So I appreciated having a, an understanding of what was going on around me to uh, t- so that
0: I can so I can do these things. so I can make life better. I was going to ask you about some of the um, measured, me- I was going to ask you about some of the measures you've put in place to kind of help you. Um, uh, mitigate the symptoms of, of both depression and anxiety. And you kind of, you've already touched on them, but just, you know, exercise, you're blogging, you're being open and talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, you've identified some foods that maybe don't help (laughs) you. Um, are, are there any other, um, any other things that you personally have found helpful? Well, I do. Actually, I said I don't work with a doctor and that's not entirely true. Um,
1: my nutritionist, um, a clinical licensed nutritionist, the kind that actually has all of the schooling behind them. You could, there are lots of different levels when you say the word nutritionist. And if you're going to go see one, I recommend you. You do the research and find somebody who actually has the schooling and everything behind them. Um, and it's actually my, my doctor from back in Madison, whom I still continue to see via Skype because, I mean, she just, she changed my life. I, I, things got so much better after I started seeing her and and taking better care of myself that, that I want to stay in touch with her. So, you know, I take some supplements and I do a lot of things that she recommended. One of the things was meditation. And I've been, I've actually been practicing meditation since I was like 10 or something because I came from a, a meditating family. I grew up doing transcendental meditation, TM, the, uh, that, which is one of many types of really good kinds of meditation. So I'm not saying that that's, that's the one and only, um, but I wasn't always so great with my practice and and she encouraged me to, to be more regular with that. And I do find that that is helpful when I do that regularly. Um, another thing, actually I wrote a whole blog post about jigsaw puzzles and how I find doing a jigsaw puzzle can be very calming and very helpful for, for a mind such as mine. I don't know that it will work for everybody, mm-hmm. but taking something that is so completely fractured and putting it back together is it's something that my brain just likes to do. I'm really good at jigsaw puzzles. I'm pretty fast at putting them together, but it makes me feel good. It makes me, it makes me feel like I have control of what's going on around me and I can listen to a podcast or music or a a big finish audio play or something while I'm doing it. So it's just a great way to not quite zone out, but to give my brain some of the, the much needed quiet time. So I love doing puzzles. I always have one on the go at least.
0: That's how Lego is for me. Actually, mm-hmm. we have. Um, so you're talking about Stephen liking Lego um, or loving Lego. I've <laughs> seen <laughs> yes. some of the stuff he's put together. My husband mm-hmm. is actually the same way. And so, you know, like I had Lego when I was little and, you know, I'd mess around with it. But I mean, now I'll I'll try to take some pictures and like put them in the show notes. We've got yeah. like those giant. um I don't even know the the huge building sets that yes, like the- actually open up and have like detail inside. Which ones do you have? I'm curious because oh, we have. Gosh. A here too. Well, I got him I got him the theater Oh, for I Christmas. Theater. <laughs> so we haven't put that one together yet, but that was my Christmas present for him. Oh, you are gonna um, enjoy the heck out of that one. <laughs> we have the pet store. Yes. Oh, um, that's one that we have too. Yeah. I'm looking at it right I now. I know it has got the little little animals in it. Um we have, oh gosh, the the corner shopping mall. Type thing, shopping center. Um, oh, so jealous.
1: That's one that Steven has wanted.
0: Is that the one with a little escalator
1: inside? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, we've got the French restaurant. I gave him that one for his birthday this year, I think. Chez Albert. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it because it's got like these little details where they've got like little croissant rolls <laughs> that act as the the decorative like scroll work on yep. the architectural detail on the building. I love it. I think a Lego rolling pin. It's probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life.
1: <laughs> uh, and the fact that there's like a little rat out by the dumpster out uh-huh. back. And it's like,
0: man, they think of everything. They do. And the, the dumpsters have things like they give you little pieces to put in the dumpsters, <laughs> So the dumpsters are full. Yep. Um, and then I have like... um. Just in my office, I'm looking behind me. I've got like the ghost the Ghostbusters car that I can't remember the name of right now. I've Act got one. Yes. Um I have a little uh like three inch tall at at. Um nice. I have Oh, the Trevi Fountain from the architecture series in here. So, yeah, um, mm. we recently got the the uh, the Doctor Who set with the TARDIS with mm. the inside of the TARDIS. And we put that together um, the other day. Yeah. So um, you with puzzles is kind of us with Lego. I have never gotten to the point where I've actually taken one apart and then p- put it back together again. But it might come <laughs> to that because we're running out of space and money to buy these things.
1: Oh, honey, I <laughs> I feel your pain. I, I since I moved here, I've never had a dining room table because uh, <laughs> the the eight-foot Lego baseball stadium moved in before I do. It is <laughs>
0: so amazing, though.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. But yeah, like that, that kind of putting things together. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't do a whole lot of Lego because Steven loves it so much <laughs> that I pretty much just leave it to him. I enjoy watching him put together the Lego because he's having such a good time.
0: Well, so um, what we do is actually for the sets that I buy for Justin, um, he puts them together, but I help him like sort out the pieces.
1: Yeah. Steven is
0: colorblind. So I am a big, uh, big help when it yeah. comes
1: to sorting pieces because some of those Lego colors are, are similar. Like they you can't are. always tell, the, the you know, the gray from the, the browns and the blues and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They really really are so yeah um and getting back on track. I've also heard that like adult coloring books are making a resurgence. I actually got some from my mom for
1: for my birthday, which I haven't had a chance to sit down and use yet because I've been so so busy. Mm. But yeah, lots, you know, new studies coming out all the time saying that that coloring is is, does things to your brain that are very similar to meditation. It's kind of the closest thing you can get without actually without actually meditating. Uh, So that's, you know, she got me some colored pencils and a couple of coloring books. And I'm really excited to, to dive into that. As a matter of fact, my cousin, who is an artist and lives in the uh, in the Memphis area, she just published an adult coloring book, oh, really? which has a bunch of her designs, um, you know, not colored in. And my mom has, I haven't gotten one of them yet because I live in another country, but uh, but my mom has started sending me pictures of the, the things that she's colored in from my cousin's book. And it's just, it's really gorgeous.
0: Oh, so cool. Uh, if you can send me a link, I will put it in the show notes so that people Absolutely. can i Absolutely. She'd love that. Yeah, that'd be neat. Yeah. I, I have several... Um, I get, um, well, there are a couple of things like we turn the lights. So we have hue bulbs all over our house. Speaking of spending ungodly amounts of money, Mm -hmm. um, that we make pretty warm at night, um, and less blue. So it messes up with like being able to tell what color things are. Um, (laughs) so I'm like coloring and I'm like, is this really what I want it to look like? Um, and that's the best time I have to, to do things like that is at night. So I've been messing with, I got an iPad pro. Um, so I've been messing with like, um, what is that app called? Pigment and seeing if that might be something that can fill that need for me, but it's not quite the same. Right.
1: So, so do the, uh, do the colored bulbs help? Or is that just because aesthetically you like it or does that help you mental health wise as well?
0: Um, so research, let me put on my, I'm not a scientist ta- um, research, <laughs> uh, shows several, several times over the last, I don't know, like decade or so there have been studies that are showing that blue, bright blue lights at night, um, are not good for circadian rhythms. And mm-hmm. I have a history of going through cycles of insomnia. Um, uh, gotcha. so once every like three to six months I'll have a week where I can sleep m- maybe three hours a night. Eesh. And, um, so we got hue bulbs, which are, um, you can control the bright both the brightness and the color of the light. So, you know, you could go anything like bright reds or like daylight colors. And so we have them set on a schedule to, as the evening progresses, get a little bit warmer and a little bit dimmer as the night goes on to kind of help with my circadian rhythm. Yeah. Um, because I guess the blue light recent studies are showing that the blue light actually suppresses melatonin production. Huh. Um, Ow. so I've actually started, I started wearing amber goggles, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not so, so good at, um, because I still like to play video games at night and they still give off blue light or look at my phone or that kind of thing. So, um, it, it actually does help me quite a bit. I can tell on the nights where I don't wear them when I try to go to sleep, it takes me longer. Um, and I'm a little bit like more wired when I go to bed as it, as um then i am when i wear wear the goggles um or now that i've got the um ios 9.3 beta on my phone it actually has a control to make to kind of mute the blue tones a little bit and it helps me quite a bit wow
1: that's fascinating i mostly don't have trouble with insomnia once i fall asleep i'm out for the night and <sighs> usually it only takes me you know 10 minutes to 45 minutes to fall asleep but every once in a while i do have uh, that awful feeling of not being able to fall asleep. And it's rare enough for me that I really feel for people like you who have to deal with it more regularly. Um, but I do find that light, just light in general kind of affects me when I'm feeling depressed. I need to turn on all the lights Mm -hmm. and just make it, make it brighter. And, uh, that's like when I was living with my dad, he was the opposite. You know, when I was at home, he always liked to turn, turn lights down and I was constantly turning them up. And, and actually my sister, whom I lived with for a while, she, she has MS. And one of the big issues that she has is, uh, is with her optic nerves. So she really literally can't handle bright lights. So whenever we're hanging out together, I mean, she pretty much wears tinted glasses, like migraine glasses all, all the, time. the time. She just, she just has to now. Um, but even when we're together, you know, we are turning down lights. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, a an interesting struggle to balance between her needs and my needs and uh and i wonder if changing the hue of the lights at all would make any difference for me i might have to uh do a little investigation into that
0: yeah i mean start i i would recommend um starting with just buying a- amber goggles i got them off of amazon mm-hmm. for like six bucks they look awful nice because i wear <laughs> who cares I, you know yeah i mean it's just my husband and he married me so you know he's stuck <laughs> um <laughs> But I wear prescription glasses, so I had to get like the big their big safety goggles <laughs> basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's a pretty low cost investment, um, just to see if they work for you and then um like maybe go from there if you want would be my suggestion. But oh, um, I may look into that. And I've always been like really sensitive to light. I don't like overhead lights. Um I like, you know, so we have a bunch of IKEA globes around the house because uh-huh. Justin likes it bright, but I don't like overhead lights so we we've, we've spent many years trying to balance that out so um and now we're we're pretty close to an hour and i don't know is there anything else you wanted to talk about today i
1: can't think of anything i mean we covered geekery and doctor who and, and mental health i think those are kind of like the the, the tentacles of my lights in many ways yeah
0: <laughs> okay well erica how can people find you online well, um, probably the easiest
1: way is I am on Twitter and that's at Hollygo Darkly, which is a a reference to Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was a favorite film for a long time i've I've somewhat fallen out of love with it in the past few years since I think i'm i'm not the same person that I was when I loved that movie the mm-hmm. char- the, the main character Holly Go Lightly is such a a tragic sort of broken figure she is and i think i think that's that's who i was for many years and i just I, I feel like i've gotten my life together so much and things are so good that i don't relate to her in the same way i did anymore mm-hmm. but i still think the name holly go darkly is kind of hilarious and fun so i will probably never give that up as a handle um and so that's the easiest way to find me. I also have a blog where I talk about, like we've mentioned, mental health, but also lots of just geeky pop culture stuff, kind of whatever strikes my fancy. And that is at uh, fangirlknitscarf.wordpress.com. Because when I started it, I was trying to knit a Doctor Who scarf, which is about a quarter of the way done it was <laughs> was sitting in the say. closet <laughs> behind me. Uh, that was, I don't know, five years ago. I I really am going to get back to it someday. I want that scarf and I want to have me be the one the who finished it but yeah um i just need to get off my butt and get back to it i don't have the patience for that
0: <laughs> um well you can find the show on twitter at less than or equal if you have feedback suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest please go to relay.fm ltoe and fill out the contact form if you have a few minutes it'd be wonderful if you could leave a review or star rating on itunes Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.